Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Human beings do a very strange thing. All the time, human beings choose to give birth. Now, when you stop and think about it, maybe you've never had to do that before, but stop and think about it for a moment. Choosing to give birth is a very strange thing, isn't it? Now, here's why it's strange. It is the willing embrace of pain. Every woman choosing to give birth knows that it will be painful and still they do it don't they and for some women not just once but twice or several times over having been through it once in all its agony and saying never again in that moment again they choose to give birth it's just one example isn't it of strange things that human beings do A strange thing where we know what it is to consciously choose the root of suffering. Why do human beings do that? Why the embrace of pain? Willingly, gladly. I think there is one simple reason all the time and it's this. It is because of what is waiting for us on the other side. That's why women do it, isn't it? It's why... It's why the human race does this, because what you hold in your hands after all the pain of childbirth is worth it. When things are at their hardest, friends, this evening, when the difficulty is most intense, a clear sight of the end, a clear sight of the goal, the thing that you are aiming at, that is what makes all the difference in the world, isn't it? Being able to see crystal clearly what is coming is the difference between pulling up short or persevering all the way to the end. Now, we've been in Mark's gospel enough by now, haven't we, to know that seeing is one of the big things that Mark is pressing on us. People who see, but who don't really see. Do you still not see or understand? Jesus has just asked his disciples, hasn't he? Back in chapter 8, verse 17. Do you yet not perceive or understand? You have eyes, but you don't see. Ears, but you don't hear. The blind man that we saw last week healed in two stages. It is an illustration of Peter coming to see who Jesus is in two stages. Peter sees that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the the King, the Messiah. But he has not seen why Jesus came He's still blind. And this evening, friends, as we look at Mark chapter 9, Mark wants us to see that unless we see who Jesus is, we will not and we cannot keep going until the end. The road you and I have to walk, each of us will always, always be a road of hardship and suffering. That's what Jesus said, didn't he? Look back at verse 34, calling the crowd to him. With his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Do you see it? If you want to follow me, and friends, the world over, many people put their hand up to say, yes, I'm all in. I want to follow you. And what does Jesus say in reply? Here is your cross. Choose pain. Tether yourself to pain that is coming. And friends, what will make you do that? What what will help you lose your life? Be willing to die. Be willing to give up everything. Mark chapter 9 says, what will make you do that is seeing that the Jesus you are waiting for is a Jesus who has passed through suffering to glory. And because he is glorious, he is able to keep you as you pass through suffering to glory. See, these verses that we read, on the face of it, it's a, it's a pretty amazing thing to happen, isn't it? An astonishing thing, this, this transformation that comes over Jesus' person. But why did it happen? And why did it happen here, straight away after those words in chapter 8? Why did the Lord Jesus lead these three men up a hill to do it? What purpose did it serve? It shows us Jesus' glory, yes, but why did Peter, James, and John need to see it? And why do we need to know that it happened? I want to give you three things to see here as we look at this beautiful passage together. Number one, know the future. Know the future. Look, look back at verse 38 of chapter 8 again. For whoever is ashamed of me, the Lord Jesus speaking, and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of that person will... The Son of Man also be ashamed. I will be ashamed of him when I come in the glory of my Father with the holy angels. See, Jesus knows that his second coming in the future at some point is an absolute certainty. It is fixed. It is coming. And we need to know that it's coming. That's why he's telling us in verse 38. But that return when he comes will not be like his first coming. See what he says? He will come in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Here is a coming that is going to be spectacular. Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire and in the majesty of his power. That's what Paul tells us later in the New Testament, isn't it? It is going to be public. It is going to be universal. It is going to be visible. And it is going to be complete and full and final revelation to the world of who Jesus is in all his glory. The Son of Man in His Father's glory. He has been given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, all men and women of every language and tongue will come and worship Him. He will have an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. Friends, that is the future. That is your future. It's what we're waiting for. And tell me if you think this is right. Tell me over coffee if you think this is right. I think that coming is harder to believe in than his first coming. We've kind of got so used to the first coming, haven't we? Advent is here. Christmas is all around us. We we hear about the incarnation of the Lord Jesus every year. Yes, it is mind-blowing to comprehend that the, the one who who carved the very edges of the cosmos, takes human nature to himself and 
curved into a fetal ball in the darkness of a virgin's womb. It is astonishing, an amazing thing to believe. And yet we do believe it, don't we? We, we treasure the gospel story. It's, it's, it's here for us every year and so somehow it seeps into our consciousness of what we believe. But his second coming, really? He's really going to come again. He's going to, the the skies will open. The eternal sun will descend from heaven in blazing glory with his powerful angels. Really? Into this world? My ordinary humdrum week or my my working week or, or maybe centuries after I'm dead and gone into the mundane lives of my descendants. One day this Jesus will come back in glory. Well, tell me what you think. Maybe I'm wrong, but I I think it is harder for us to reckon with that coming as really real. Seems so far off, doesn't it? So, so in the distance, so in, so in the future, so different from how we think of the Lord Jesus. Is it really rock solid cast iron future that is coming? And friends, the Lord Jesus knows here in this passage that unless his disciples believe that that is true with all their heart and know that it is our future, we will not keep walking with him in the present. That is why the transfiguration happens. That that is what it is doing here. Jesus is giving these disciples, here in verses 2 to 13, a glimpse of that future that he has promised them in verse 38 of chapter 8. A glimpse of the future that is coming. He he lets them see that it is really real. And it really is true so that they will listen to him and hang on his every word and follow him with with every step, even to the point of dying for him. Jesus knows that to see him with the eyes of faith, as we stumble along the path of suffering and pain and as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and serve him in this veil of tears, Jesus knows we will stick to him most closely and listen to him most attentively when our vision of who he really is is crystal clear. And so he gives to Peter, James and John a physical sight of him which will sustain and nurture their spiritual journey with Jesus all along the path of the cross. Friends, know your future. It is verse 38 of chapter 8. That is your future. And here is the glimpse of it in chapter 9. So here's the second point to see. See the glory. Know your future. Number two, see the glory. If you want to know why this future glory which Jesus promised us is really certain, then then look at his present glory here in these verses. Look at the glimpse he gives us. See, I think that's the best way to understand chapter 9, verse 1. If you, maybe you're astonished to discover this. Chapter 9, verse 1 is the kind of verse that hundreds of PhDs have been written on over the years. What does Jesus mean when he says, some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom come with power. I don't think in in that verse he's talking about his second coming and saying, look, some of you disciples here are going to be alive at the end of time when I come back. No, I think verse 1, it's most naturally read as referring to what's about to follow it, isn't it? Some of you here, notice the emphasis on seeing in verse 1. 
Some of you here are going to get a, a foretaste. That's what the transfiguration is all about. It's seeing Jesus. You're going to get a, a foretaste of my glorious kingly rule that I've just been telling you about. It's going to happen soon. Look at verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. So look at it again, how amazing it is. Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. If you look at Matthew's gospel telling this story, Matthew says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. And you, you teach children early on, don't you, in life, don't look at the sun. When you try and look at it, you can't do it, can you? When you look at the sun for... I don't know what, five seconds, ten seconds, it makes you want darkness, doesn't it? You close your eyes to relieve your eyes. The strength of the light is too much. Mark's description here, he says, verse 3, that Jesus' clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. It's the kind of whiteness that nobody else on earth could ever produce. No man-made cleansing agent, nothing you can put in the washing machine to, to get that whiteness back. No kind of bleach can get you this kind of white. Now friends, put those two things together, what Matthew says and what Mark says. Can you imagine the effect of having both of those things together? Jesus' face shining like the sun and his clothes being dazzling white. Some of you have done that on a hill walk, haven't you? been up a hill in... Uh, some certain time of year and snow is all around but the sun is shining and the combination of the sun at its height with all its light and white reflecting off it it is a terrible combination it can leave you completely blind did you see the glory of Jesus Mark is saying chapter 8 verse 38 he will come in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Really? Really? You're just a man standing here in front of us. We've just been in a boat with you. Actually, he is so glorious, you cannot see him. You have to avert your gaze and look elsewhere. But you know, friends, this isn't the only way we're meant to see the glory here. Mark wants us to see the glory, not just in the light, but also in the geography and the company. Look at the geography. Where does this happen? Up a high mountain. And who does it happen to? The company, three men, Peter, James, and John. And who do these three men see with the Lord Jesus, along with him, Moses and Elijah? See, Jesus has led these three men up a mountain, just like in Exodus chapter 24, Moses led three men up a mountain. Moses went up the mountain with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. And the point of the Exodus mountaintop experience was to teach Moses to listen to God. It was an authentication meeting, a credentials meeting. It was a revelation of God's glory to Moses so that Moses knew who he was dealing with, knew who he had to listen to. He knew that God's words were to be trusted and obeyed and followed. But the point of this mountaintop experience is not to teach Jesus, is it, that God's words are to be trusted and followed and obeyed? No, it is to teach the disciples that Jesus' words are to be trusted and followed and obeyed. 
See in verse 7, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah are seen talking to Jesus. And yet when the cloud lifts, there's only one person left there, Jesus himself. See, see the meaning of it? What God was to Moses in the cloud on Sinai, what God was to Moses in the cloud on Sinai, Jesus is to these disciples in the cloud on this mountain. It is a staggering, breathtaking revelation of his glory. Everything that Moses encountered, these disciples encounter. Do you remember when Isaiah saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted, the, the train of his robe, the very trailing end, end of his robe, filling the temple, not even God himself filling the temple, the edge of his trailing edge of his robe filling the temple. What did Isaiah say when he saw that? He said, woe is me. I am ruined. And the Lord Jesus says in John's gospel, the person that Isaiah saw in the temple was me. He saw me in the temple. It was my glory, my holy presence that undid him. And it is the same here for Peter and James and John. Look at verse 6. They did not know what to say. They were terrified. Nobody got, nobody got their phone out to take a picture. Nobody wrote home. No, their knees were knocking. Friends, do, do you see what the Lord Jesus is doing here for his weak and fearful and his soon-to-be-broken and persecuted followers. See what he's doing? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, it is so easy to be ashamed of Jesus, isn't it? So easy to be ashamed of him and his words. If you just think of Jesus as a wandering prophet, gentle Jesus, meek and mild... That's all you think of him. A teacher whose words are quite hard to get your head around and certainly out of step with the culture and the world in which we live in. If that is all you think of him, friends, then it will not take long before you unbuckle the crossbeam from your shoulders and instead set yourself on the path of comfort and self-indulgence. Or for these disciples here... If if they are ashamed of Jesus and then they watch the hatred of the Jews growing in the cities, they watch Stephen stoned to death, or they look at their family members thrown to the lions or set on fire in Nero's gardens, it is very, very easy to be ashamed of Jesus and to want to save your life instead of losing your life, isn't it? Unless you know that the Son of Man will one day come in His Father's glory with His holy angels because you have seen that glory. That's how you know it's real. You have glimpsed it and witnessed it. And it was more than you could bear. And so you know that Jesus is so much more than you had ever imagined. He is worth dying for because you have seen his glory. Jesus wants us to know that those who share his sufferings, and they are very real, aren't they? Those same people will one day share his glory. Because look, his glory too is very real. 
So what, what is the point of it all? Why does Jesus give them this glimpse of his deity and his divine splendor? Well, he does it for them because it's like what he did for Isaiah in the temple. He does it so that they will listen to him. Above all other voices in the world, above everybody else, more than anyone else in all the world, what is the point of the transfiguration? Verse 7, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Listen to my beloved, glorious Son. This is my third, final point this evening. Listen to the Son. Know the future, friends. See the glory. Listen to the Son. Do you notice that verses 8 to 13 is all about hearing? Verses 2 to 7, all about seeing. And now from 7 and 8 down to the end, it's all about listening. It's what Jesus said, didn't he? Do you have eyes to see and ears to hear? Here he is giving the three disciples orders. Keep quiet about what you have seen. And they ask him questions and he answers. They are learning to listen to him. And what they are still learning about, friends, is this. That before the glory, before the glory comes, there is suffering. Before the crown for the Son and for them, there is a cross for the Son. And so for them, the the disciples just still don't get this, do they? You see Peter's words in verse 5 about building shelters. This is so astonishing. Let's stay here, Lord. And he doesn't understand that God is just giving them a glimpse, a tiny foretaste. This is not yet the permanent presence of glory. Peter says, this is amazing, let's, let's stay here. But what has Jesus has said to him? The Son of Man must suffer many things. And so as they come down the mountain, the disciples are trying to put two and two together. We, we've just seen you in all your glory, Lord. So this is it. Now surely we're heading to Jerusalem with you as king in all your glory. You're going to enter the city and like one of those uh, CGI movies, your enemies are just going to evaporate before you. We've seen the kingdom come with power. No, look what Jesus says in verse 12. Look how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. There is only one path to glory and it is through suffering and pain. For me, for Elijah, for John the Baptist and for you disciples. Suffering first, glory later. I want to give you just two things as I finish. Two things. Number one, friends, there is no one more glorious than Jesus. There is no one more glorious than Jesus. There, there, there is a glory gulf between the Lord Jesus and every other person in the world. He towers above them. I, I don't know if you've ever had this, if you've ever been in the presence of somebody famous Some of us are not at all bothered by celebrity, are we? I think my mother-in-law is exactly like this. It doesn't matter who it would be. Probably the queen. She'd respect the queen, I know. But anybody else, she just wouldn't be remotely bothered about who they are. But some of us, well, I don't know, take your pick, Adele or the Beckhams, they walk into the room and you would be absolutely speechless, wouldn't you? There's that famous story from years ago that Victoria Beckham was in a ski lift and the ski lift was full of laughter and happiness and joy and everybody speaking. And Victoria Beckham walked in and the entire ski lift went completely silent. And people traveled up the side of the mountain in 
terror and fear, this celebrity in their midst, reaching for their phones, just silently trying to take a picture. We don't know what to do with people like, like, like that, do we? They, they steal our ability to speak because we think, you are not like me and I cannot speak to you and I don't know what to do with you. Friends, all of that pales into insignificance compared to the glory of the Lord Jesus. You see, the the point of Moses and Elijah appearing here was to take two of the greatest figures in the Old Testament and teach the disciples that Jesus was greater and better than them. He needed to be listened to more than them. Here is Moses. Moses himself listening to Jesus. Elijah listening to Jesus. See, imagine somebody like Barack Obama. People have different views of him, of course, as a president, don't don't we? But over here, at least on this side of the pond, he's kind of retained his statesman-like figure. Imagine when somebody like Obama was running for president. Imagine when he's doing those debates and he's trying to convince the nation to vote, vote for him. And he's just about to debate his opposite number. I can't remember who he was running against first time. John McCain was it, I think. He's just about to uh, debate him. And as he's about to debate him, imagine somehow that John F. Kennedy, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, imagine if all of them somehow appeared on the stage and just as Obama stands to speak, they come and stand just behind him. What would the point of it be? It would be to say, this man has our endorsement. This man is the one that you should listen to. What an endorsement it would be to have all the great figures of the past standing behind this one man. Oh, here it is, friends, Elijah and Moses. And it all happens so that we will listen to him and trust him with our tears and persevere with him in our pain and stay with him in our sorrows because there is no one more glorious in all the world. Second thing to see as we finish, there is no death more glorious than Jesus' death. No death more glorious than Jesus' death. That's what he's going to do, isn't he? To suffer and die in Jerusalem. See, the the point of these verses is It says to us that the glory of the cross is not that someone died for us, which would be glorious enough, wouldn't it, for someone to take our place, but look who it was who died for us. The the eternal Son, the one that the law and the prophets pointed to, the the one whose glory terrified disciples on a hillside, who humbled Isaiah in a vision in the temple. It is that one who joined himself to frail human nature, took it to himself, joined himself, contracted to a span human nature. Incomprehensibly made man. And that one died. That one died. You see, when his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white, In that moment, friends, verses 2 and 3, here's the way the theologians describe this. What you're reading in verses 2 and 3, that was not an adding to Jesus of something which he previously didn't have. No, it was an unveiling of what was truly his. Isn't that amazing? It, It is the adding to himself of human nature that is adding something to him that he does not, did not have. 
This is an unveiling of who he really, truly is. He wasn't putting on a mask for a few moments, like doing a performance for a couple of seconds, like he, he sort of changed into something that he wasn't really. No, it's much more that that God turned on the lights of the universe, lifted the veil of reality just ever so slightly so that his boundless glory broke through just for a moment. It is astonishing who it is that goes to the cross to suffer and die. Poverty, homelessness, hunger, thirst, weariness, powerlessness, friendlessness, pain and sorrow. All of those facets of life that were his, they they veil his glory, don't they? They're like a curtain over it. But here for just a moment, Christ has a form that corresponds to his true identity and his majesty is displayed for all to see. I think, friends, it is that that makes the words of verse 12 so wonderful. How is it written of the Son of Man? How is it written of him that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Look who it is that goes to Calvary for you. Look who it is who is dying. Oh, friends, this evening I have a simple aim for the transfiguration to give you hope. If it is this person who suffers, this radiant son who did that for you, and it is that person who asked you to follow him and lay down your life for him, don't you think he can be trusted? What is your future? Glory beyond description. Glory beyond compare in the presence of the eternal son who loved us. And gave himself for us. Amen.